0: Uh, It's time to read from God's Word. We're going to kick off with Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 to 12. So feel free to follow in the Bibles, or I think it'll be on the screen. It's on page 830, and that was Matthew chapter 5, starting at verse 1. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them.
1: Good morning. Uh, Our second reading this morning is from Revelation chapter 2 verse 8 to 11 and it is on page 1063 of your pew bibles. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write these are the words of him who was first and the last who died and came to life. I know your afflictions and your poverty yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews. And are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit has to say to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all. By the second death. Well, good morning. It's a great privilege
2: to be here. My name is uh, Josh, and I I know I've met some of you and not others, uh, but it's a great joy to open up God's word together this morning. This week, as we've already heard in the open mic, as we've heard in the prayers, there's a war happening in the world, a war beginning. And when that happens in the world, it brings grief, it brings uncertainty it brings an unsettledness and it brings sorrow to the people who are involved but also to those of us around the world who hear about that and it also brings a hope that this won't be very long that this will be over soon that that's the hope of all of us isn't it this week also in the scriptures we read consistently and continually through the the Bible that there is another war going on, not a war with guns and helicopters and artillery and soldiers going across the ground, but a spiritual war, a spiritual war happening in hearts across the world, a spiritual war that the devil and the flesh and the world is waging against God and his plans and against God's people. And as we look at this letter of revelation, as we've been doing the last couple of weeks, we see that this war is happening today against the church, that it's happening against us today. And what are we to say about this? What does Jesus say about this war? What kind of encouragement does Jesus give us today as we think about this war that's going on against us, his church? The answer in this part of the Scriptures, in this letter to Smyrna, one of these first seven churches that Jesus addresses, the answer is actually encouraging and it's assuring and comforting for us today. But it's also, it's also confronting because Jesus wants to give us the reality of what is happening in our world in this time before his return. He gives us a reality check. He gives us the bad news before he gives us the good news. Today we come to uh, the second letter of the seven letters Jesus speaks to his churches in Revelation. And as we saw last week, that number seven is the word for completeness. It means uh, the total church, the global church of Jesus throughout the ages of which we are a part. And so this isn't just a letter for people in the first century. This is a letter for us today, for our encouragement. And the first thing that the risen Lord Jesus says today to this church, to us is that he knows them and he knows us. He knows Smyrna in the first century uh, and he knows Ukraine and Russia, the church there today. He knows his church in forgotten parts of the world, whether it's just one or two people meeting in a house He knows his church in Dubai. He knows his church here in Sydney, in Kirribilli, in Neutral Bay, in Macquarie Park. Jesus knows his church. And notice that it's the risen Lord Jesus addressing his church here. Have a look at verse 8 with me. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. So here is Jesus in his place of resurrected glory, having died, come back to life with the Father, addressing his church on the earth. This is the one who was there before the creation of the world, the word with the Father, the first one. This is the one who uh, in 0 AD came to this world to do three decades of ministry in this world, to die and to rise again And is now seated in glory for all eternity and will be there at the last day of human history and will be there into eternity. This is who he is and he addresses his church and he knows his church. might be comforting at work to have a relationship with a colleague, but how much more amazing to have a relationship with the boss, the one who has all the power in their hands. Jesus holds all things in his hands including death itself because he's gone through that and come out the other side to victory, to glory, to life. And he knows us. He knows us inside and out. And as we saw two weeks ago, he not only knows us but he loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. Have a look at verse 9. I know your afflictions and your poverty... Yet you are rich. Jesus uh, knows us so completely. Have you ever had someone who knows you so well that when they see you, they say, uh, you're not going well. What's going on? They can see it written all over your face. Well, Jesus is like that with his church, but even more so. He knows what's going on. First here he sees the afflictions of his people, the suffering, the trials, the, the troubles. These could be spiritual or physical or psychological. What are you facing today? Jesus knows about it already. More than that, he knows the church's financial situation. He says, I know your poverty. So Jesus knows your bank balance. And throughout history, he knows the church's situation, their financial situation. Uh, For some people, that's a really good financial situation. For some, like the church in Smyrna, that was... A terrible situation, probably because they've been excluded from the pagan economy because of their Christian convictions and they could no longer even do trade because of the idolatry and so they're excluded. Now they're poor, they've got no money to buy new clothes, they're not eating out for dinner. This is a church that is struggling. And Jesus says, I know your poverty, but verse 9, he knows the true situation for the church. You are rich, he says. The church through the ages, sometimes in the dust and the dirt and in the poverty, living in slums and makeshift homes, Jesus says, I know your true assets. I know your wealth in heaven. Because of my blood and my righteousness, you have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. You have an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade, kept for you. And maybe not in this life. But in the life to come, when we meet him face to face, a Christian could not be wealthier in that moment. And Jesus knows the reception that his church receives from others. In Smyrna, there was persecution from the Jews in the synagogue. Uh, We read in verse 9, I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. It's been said uh, that... Often persecution doesn't come as a result of preaching the name of Jesus. No one throws a rock at someone because they mentioned the name of Jesus. It's often something to, around it, something secondary, or or even a lie or a slander made up against the Christians. That was true for Paul in the city of Ephesus in the book of Acts. Uh, they they accuse Paul. They say he's trying to destroy our trade. He's trying to destroy the idol making that we're doing here. That's not why Paul came to the city of Ephesus. He came to preach Jesus, and one of the implications of that is that people would leave idolatry. But they're saying this man is trying to destroy our economy. Other times, in A.D. 64, there was a, the Great Fire of Rome, where a fire started in the stadium and over six days burnt down fourteen districts in Rome. And who did Emperor Nero blame? Christians. He made up a lie which was convenient, which people believed, which worked out for him. And the Christians were killed and persecuted because of it. And it's really hard to not react badly when you're slandered, isn't it? If someone's saying lies about you, you want to stand up and say, it's not true, it's all made up, which only digs the hole deeper. How can God's people stand up against slander? It's by remembering that Jesus knows the truth. He knows the real situation. He knows this is slander. It's made up. It's not true. It's a false accusation. And maybe there's some here today, it's possible that you're facing a false accusation for being a Christian. Someone said, he hates people, she hates people. Someone said, they're judgmental, they're anti-scientific. And you know it's not true. And Jesus says, I know what's going on. I know this is slander. Around the world, to Christians facing awful things, facing the death penalty, facing time in solitary confinement, facing time exposed out in the open fields around the world, Jesus says, I know what's going on. I know you're suffering, church, around the world. Or it may be more subtle uh, sorts of persecution that people face. It's probably the kind that is faced in the Western world, a subtle isolation maybe because of some weird beliefs people perceive you having and social consequences perhaps, maybe employment consequences because we can't trust this person because they're a Christian. Maybe that's you or maybe that could be you soon. Well, Jesus gives us the great encouragement today that he knows his church. He knows your situation. The risen one, the one who is present through all of human history as the first and the last, knows you, what's going on for you. And that is a word of comfort to a troubled heart. But Jesus here, he also tells us some bad news today. And I know that that's not often what we come to church for. Uh, You might think, I just want to go home now. Uh, I don't want depressing news today. But Jesus does give us a reality check about what life is like as one of his people. He says it's actually going to go from bad to worse to the church in Smyrna. Now maybe uh, you're you're, um, uh, facing something like this yourself, or maybe not, but this is important to hear because we could face it. See verse 10 with me. Do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. It's interesting that Jesus doesn't apologise here for this. It's not like he says, oh, me and my father, we've got this plan, and I'm sorry, uh, we're still working on it. Some bits are working out. Some bits are, you know, they need a bit of um, workshopping. No, Jesus does not say that, but he is intent on the church knowing the reality, knowing the good and the bad. He says, I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. I'm led to believe in some parenting books that if you forewarn your children that it makes it better for them and they can cope with what's coming better. I'm I'm applying it, but I'm still waiting for the outcome. Uh, But uh, I know the theory. Jesus loves his church enough to warn them about what's coming. Do you realize it's normal for the church to suffer? It's actually what God tells us. I was talking a few years ago to a Christian guy, and he said to me, can I actually be a Christian if I don't suffer? Is it possible to be a real Christian and not face any difficulty for it? How would you answer him? How does Jesus answer? If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. John chapter 15. How would the Apostle Paul answer uh, 2 Timothy 3 Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Uh, what would Peter say? 1 Peter 4 Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you. Persecution, hardship, suffering, difficulty, pain is normal for the church. This is part of God's plan for the world. And as we follow Jesus, we are actually out of step with the power and the ethics and the values of our society around us. It's not like the the world that put Jesus up on the cross is going to turn around and say, actually, we got that wrong. We love the church. We love his people. I don't think that's the case. So should we go looking for trouble? No. But we do need to stop curating our lives, censoring ourselves, to avoid awkwardness, suffering, difficulty for being a Christian. So often we follow the secular rule book just perfectly. We know exactly what's expected of us, so we open our mouth in church and in in our homes, but out in the world we just stay silent. I know over the years I've become extremely good at knowing what things I'm allowed to say here, what things I'm allowed to say here, but Jesus doesn't follow that rule book. And he doesn't call us to follow that rule book. When we see some awkwardness coming, some suffering coming for being a Christian, we can do two things. Number one, we can follow the example of the chameleon and try to blend in and bury our convictions and just blend in. Or we can follow the risen Lord Jesus who promises that he's with us in this, that he sees us, that he knows us and let people see how important he is to us and the difference that he makes in our lives. The prosperity gospel and all the different forms of that, which tells us that we will be blessed materially and socially and have great outcomes in our life, is just not what Jesus lived and it's not what he promised to us either. And we can't live that way. It's not the life that Jesus lived. He is the man of sorrows. He is the the lamb who was slain. He is the suffering servant. The cross for him came before the resurrection, before the crown of glory. And when we follow him, that same pattern comes to our lives as well. It's what he promises. So here's a question. If there's no disruption in our lives at all for following Jesus... If it's just complete, smooth sailing, I want to ask this question of myself. Am I hiding my faith? Have I so buried it that I'm just blending in with the world around? Or am I actually ashamed of Jesus in some way? And if that is the case, I need to turn back to him. I need to say, I'm sorry, Jesus, that I've done this. I need your forgiveness and I need your power, your help, your strength to change now, I'm not suggesting anyone gets up on their desk at work and just announces and launches into a speech so that people hate you and so you lose your job and have a martyrdom complex. And No, that wouldn't be appropriate. But if your friends and colleagues don't know you're a Christian, they don't know this means anything to you at all, would you resolve right now to change that? As soon as God gives you an opportunity to do that pray for that opportunity seek that opportunity when you're encouraged to stay silent about your faith in some situation would you say no this is too important to me i can't suppress this this is this is who i am this is what i believe i'm, I'm sorry i'm just not gonna I'm, I'm not gonna leave it behind i ha- I've gotta tell you who i really am I remember going away on a trip with some people and they were lovely to me and they were lovely people. At the end of the trip, um, I borrowed the camera of one of the guys to download his photos from the trip and I discovered this video of him and his friends holding hands, praying, (laughs) mocking me and the other Christians on the trip. Now, I don't have such a thin skin that I can't laugh about that. But as We look at our lives, do we think Christianity will be more like a trip in a self-driving car just going to get us to the destination and we sit back and relax? Or is it more like being in a rally car race where where there's things coming at you and and you have to uh, get ready to expect things to be difficult and and to navigate what's coming? It might be that at work people expect you to just sign on to this, whatever it is. And you have to find a gentle way of saying, no, I'm sorry, I I just can't do that. That's not what I believe. It might be as you watch a film and a TV show with your family that you don't just let the whole thing wash over you and just laugh at everything, but that there's bits that you say, look, let's talk about that. What do you think about that? I'm not sure what I think about that. I'm not sure where that's coming from. Let's talk about that. As we make friends, it might be that some of us love us and, and some even want to know more about our faith. And it could be that some, when they find out what we believe, just say, look, I, I don't want to be hanging out with you anymore because of that. Someone has said, actually, that the key to raising Christian children is to help them to expect that they're not going to fit in in this world because they belong to Jesus And that when they expect that and know that, they're able to have the right expectations going forward into life. That they'll have different ambitions and beliefs and dreams. That they will have a whole different direction of life that they want to go in. Jesus says that's normal Christianity. Suffering is coming. But he doesn't leave it there for us today. Jesus doesn't leave us in a place with this depressing word. He actually wants to cheer up our hearts today, and he gives us three reasons in the remainder of the passage why we don't need to fear. The first is that word test, which you see in verse 10. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you. Throughout Revelation, we see that the devil is at work, and that evil things happening in the world is actually the work of the devil. But the the book tells us that the devil is contained. He's controlled by God. And he only has this limited power and scope to do anything. That actually the devil goes no step further than God allows him to go. And that God actually uses the devil's terrible work in his great plans and his great work. And that word test, the devil doesn't test Christians. He's not trying to find out what we're like. God is the one who tests his people. So even though the test comes because of the devil, God uses the test in the life of his Christians to refine and to shape and to grow our faith. This is extremely comforting because we know that when suffering comes, it's not wasted, it's not meaningless. God is using this for his glory. It's like the sculptor chipping away at the sculpture and the bits fall away, the suffering happens and... The process is used to make a beautiful outcome. God is using every bit of suffering that you face to make you more like his son. The second reason not to fear is that our sufferings will be limited. Jesus says the devil will put some of you in prison to test you and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. 10 days is a bit weird. It really is Revelation's way of saying this is a limited period of time which is going to come to an end. God knows the time period and he's going to cut it short. It's just 10 days. I remember a time of suffering in my life and someone who'd been through something similar said to me, it gets easier and it will come to an end. And that was such a light to me, that word they spoke to me in that moment. I heard this week of a church in Kiev in Ukraine which is now gathering its 1,000 members to train them in first aid so they can help the wounded in the city. And Jesus says to that church today, it's just for a moment. To the housewife in Afghanistan, who was a Muslim who's now converted to Christianity, who's reading the Bible secretly with her friend from the local church, at great risk to her own life, Jesus says... It's just for a moment. And to the Christian in Australia, in Sydney, with colleagues now talking about them because they found out that they have Christian convictions, Jesus says it's just for a moment. The third reason not to fear is that suffering will be followed by victory. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. As we hang on to Christ, we are indestructible because his life is indestructible. He went to the grave. He came out the other side and we will share in that resurrection, in that life. He's going to give us a crown on the day that we meet him. And that crown is called eternal life in his presence forever. Many have endured in this world's history the worst things for following Christ torture, imprisonment, abandonment, loss of friends, loss of family, even death. But many people have found that Jesus sustains them through all of these trials, every single one. That when they call out to Him, the risen Lord Jesus, who knows them, who's near them, many people have even reported. A tangible, even a physical presence of Jesus in these sufferings. A nearness. Remember what Jesus says to us today. I am with you. I know you. I'm the first and the last. It's a time of testing, but it's just for a moment. Eternal life is coming. The first bishop to the church in Smyrna was a man named Polycarp, which sounds like a fish species, I realize, but um, he trained under the Apostle John, who wrote the book of Revelation. And in the year 160 AD, Polycarp was 86 years old and he was praying, and he had a a dream that told him his pillow was going to burst into flames, and he knew I'm going to be burned alive for my faith. By the way, you know you're a great missionary when at 86 people are still trying to kill you. They arrested him, they put him on trial, they offered him a chance to give up Christ, and this is what he says 86 years I have served him, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? Before they eventually set him on fire and stabbed him to death in the fire. He said, This you threaten me with fire which burns for an hour and is then extinguished. But you know nothing of the fire of the coming judgment and eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. Why are you waiting? Bring on whatever you want. And they killed him in the flames, and he prayed to God. And he obviously knew these words that Jesus spoke to the church in his city, in Smyrna. Have a read of verse 11 with me. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. So brothers and sisters today, I don't know what you're going through or what you might go through for your faith in Christ, Does it matter if you lose your job for trusting Jesus? What does it matter if someone splashes your name in the media because you have association with the church? What does it matter if friends stop inviting you to something because you're too Christian? What does it matter if one day there are laws in this country that restrict Christian speech? What does it matter if one day some people are even jailed for their faith in Christ? What does it matter? Because it will just be for ten days. And the risen, reigning Lord Jesus will be with us and he will know and there will be a crown of life for those who endure faithfully and meet him. The one who rose from the dead, he's the one who will bring us through and who will meet us and who will open up to us a new age, the resurrection age, which is life as it should be, the crown of life, and eternal joy with our God forever. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you suffered and died and rose again. You are the first and the last. You are with us now. You are with your church everywhere in Sydney, in Ukraine, in Russia, in all the nations where people call on the name of Jesus. Enable us not to fear. Help us to remain faithful, even to the point of death. Whether we're treated well or not, whether we're respected. Or not, Whether it's hard or whether it's easy, help us to live loudly for you in this world. Be with your suffering church all over the world. Show them that the time is limited, that the crown is coming, life eternal, with no fear of the second death. We love and we honour you for your death and resurrection, which is our one hope in life and death. And we need you every hour
1: until we meet you face to face.
0: Amen.